hey, it's time to dive in, man. We're so glad you're here. We're going through the book of Romans. And, you know, I, I heard about a pastor who went over to Target and, and he ran into a, a church member that he hadn't seen in a long time. And, he, and the guy said, you know, Pastor, I guess you hadn't noticed I hadn't been there. And he said, yeah, I've noticed that. I've noticed. Why, why have you not been there? And he said, well, man, I just, I just can't come to church. It's just full of hypocrites. It's full. And he said, well, don't worry, man. There's always room for one more. You can join us anytime, right? So, uh, you know, today we're going to move from talking about those dirty Gentile sinners to hypocrites. That's what Paul's going to do in chapter 2. You know, he, he spent chapter 1, we finished chapter 1 last week. He spent the first half of chapter 1 uh, outlining or introducing himself and the theme of, his gos- of, the, of the book of Romans here. And the theme is the gospel. I mean, the gospel, that's what kept him awake at night. He was the last thing he thought of when he went to sleep uh, at night. It was the first thing he thought of when he woke up. It was the air he breathed. It drove his life because it's the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. And the second half, he goes into how that there is no man, no woman on the face of the earth who has an excuse for not believing in Jesus Christ because God has clearly revealed himself. He's revealed it in a couple of different ways through immediate general revelation. Now, immediate, not immediate. Immediate general revelation means that God has revealed himself through the medium of creation. He clearly tells us that, that since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities have been made known to us. We look at the Grand Canyon. You can't look at the Grand Canyon if you've ever been there and not go, oh, wow, that didn't just happen. There is a God, right? That's called immediate general revelation. Immediate general revelation is when God has revealed himself in our conscience. Within our conscience, every person in every deepest, darkest tribe you can ever find and secluded has this conscience that where they know right from wrong, the basis of right from wrong, but we suppress it. Our conscience is seared, right? And so Paul, the second half, says that there is no excuse We can't plead ignorance. You know, we get pulled over for breaking the speed law. I don't know if you have, but I have, right? You get pulled over for breaking the speed law. The first thing that pops into your mind was, I I didn't know what the speed limit was. And the cop always says, well, ignorance is bliss, but it's no excuse, right? And so Paul says there's no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse because God has revealed himself. So ignorance is not the problem. The problem is is that we know the truth, but we suppress it, and we reject God, and we worship idols. And as a result, God turns us over to a debased mind, he says in Romans 1. And in other words, when you abandon God in your thinking, God abandons you to your thinking. God abandons you to your thinking. He turns you over to a debased mind, and a debased mind literally results in just warped thinking, which results in impure desires, which results in wicked actions. And Paul says that the wrath of God in chapter 1 is poured out against all who reject God and do their own thing. And he uses, in verses 26 and 27, he uses homosexuality as an illustration of how far out of bounds we play when we play without Jesus, right? Now you know in the church in Rome, when this letter is being read, And Paul is preaching that there in the church there were these amen brothers and hallelujah sisters. And Paul starts preaching about those homosexuals and Gentiles that are wicked sinners. And they're like waving those hankies. Amen. Preach it, Paul. You tell them, Paul. I mean, those dirty Gentile sinners, the world would be better off without them. You tell them, Paul. You know that was going on. And so what Paul does in chapter 2 is he just turns and begins to open fire on the hypocrites in the church. And, 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 it's, and it's pretty amazing because it, he wrote this 2,000 years ago to a bunch of Jewish 
synagogue-going Jews, and it's just as applicable to a bunch of church-going Christians today, a bunch of church-going people who claim to be Christians today. So let's dive in. We're going to look at chap, uh, this first 11 verses that Eleazar read a moment ago, but we're going to start, and I'm going to look at verse 1 right now. So let's look at this. It says, therefore, now this is an important word. We're gonna, you know, it, 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 we're going to talk about it because it really is strange that it's there in a sense. Therefore, you have no excuse. Here he goes again. Chapter 1 was, there's no excuse to the Gentiles, to the sinners, to those who are in Africa in the deepest village that are secluded, uh, to the man who's never heard about Jesus. There's no excuse for not knowing God, okay? Now he's talking to O-Man. O-Man is a phrase here that refers to the Jews. He's going to use it a couple of times. So now he's going from the Gentile sinners to the, Jews, the synagogue Jews, synagogue-going Jews, all right? So he says, therefore, you have no excuse Religious people, religious people, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Now, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Now, it's strange because he's been talking, as I said, about these Gentile, wicked sinners, you know, and they're like, yes, you go, Paul, you go. And then all of a sudden, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. And he's going to start talking to the, 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 the synagogue-going Jews, you know, those, those, those people who think, man, I'm on God's all-star team because I don't watch Modern Family or listen to Lady Gaga, right? And, and, and so he's talking to the, Jew, the, 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 the Gentile sinners and now the synagogue-going Jews. And it's like, therefore, in the middle, it doesn't seem to connect. And that's the point. Paul's trying to make them understand that, listen, that there's no difference here, okay? He says, you think that you're good, church, because you've got a gold star for perfect attendance in Sunday school. You think you're good because, man, you, you uh, pay your taxes and obey the speed limit. And you think you're good because, man, uh, I, I mean, you don't, you, you don't do all those wicked things. I mean, you, you think you're good because you think one day you're going to stand before God with everybody. And God's going to look at this man who woke up in Kentucky in the back of an El Camino and couldn't find his pants. And he's going to look at you and say, you're pretty good, dude. Right? And, and Paul says, oh, 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 God doesn't grade on a curve, so slow your roll. God doesn't grade on a curve. And you see, that's what we do. We, we have a tendency to look at people, pick out people who we think are worse than us and say, I'm good, right? And Paul said, God doesn't grade on a curve. There's two kinds of people, biblically speaking, two kinds of people. There are people who are saved, people who are not saved. People who know Jesus, people who don't. People who are righteous, people who are unrighteous. People who are in Jesus, people who aren't in Jesus. And when it comes to those who are not saved, those who do not know Jesus, you know, some of them, man, they're obvious rebels. I mean, you look out, man, and they, that person's an obvious rebel. I mean, they are running as far, as fast from God as they can, wide open with their hair on fire, right? I mean, man, to them, church is a curse word. They want nothing to do with it. They're obvious rebels. But then there are others who don't know Jesus that are not so obvious. I mean, man, they are, look very professional. They wear khakis and polos and use patchouli soap and buy five uh, boxes of Girl Scout cookies every year, right? And it's like, uh, the, the, it's not so obvious. And, and what Paul is saying here is they're moral, but they're lost. They're moral, they're good people, but hell's full of good people. That's what Paul's saying. They're moral, but they're lost. They're, they're, their sins are different, but their guilt is the same. And it is the, the, the hardest person to ever bring across the line of faith is a religious moral person. Because you see, a religious moral person 
They don't, they don't think they need Jesus. They, they think they're better than everyone else. You see, and, and I mean, Paul says basically that, that the hypocrite has 20-20 vision when it comes to everyone else's sin. They can clearly see it. But they have literally, they're legally blind when it comes to their own sin. They're legally blind because they, they don't see their own sin. Tim Keller, he points out the fact that there basically are two kinds of hypocrites, biblically and practically in today's world. There's diverting hypocrites and, and there's corresponding hypocrites. You know, diverting hypocrites, we've all seen them. The, diverting hypocrites are the people that point out people that commit sins that they don't commit. Maybe it's a minority sin like homosexuality. Maybe it's, a, uh, it's some other wicked sin. They point it out and say, look at those people. And it diverts from my sin. It's a diverting hypocrite. I've got sin, but I want to point it out. And this is our bottom line for, the day, for today, by the way, is don't point it out, live it out. Don't point it out, live it out. When it comes to judging other people and pointing at their sin to divert from your sin, don't point it out, live it out. Prove it. Okay? So there's diverting hypocrites, but there's also corresponding hypocrites. You know, corresponding hypocrites are hypocrites that point out the sins that they commit in the lives of other people, but they make the other person look bad so that they can make themselves look better. You, you know, you, you've, many of us have participated in, in this corresponding hip, hip, hypocrisy, and you've seen it, you know, like this. You have an anger issue. I'm passionate, right? You gossip. I share prayer requests, right? I mean... You're, you're, I mean, listen, so, so we, we, we pass on and we correspond and it makes them look bad and it makes us look better. And so Paul said, you know, you pass judgment on other people and I could literally line up people for a mile long to point out your sin. So don't point it out, live it out, right? Don't pass judgment. Now, let me make sure you understand what judgment means and what Paul's talking about here, okay? Because we are confused about what judgment is and isn't in our world. So I want to talk about it for a moment. There are two kinds of judgment. There is unrighteous judgment and there is righteous judgment. We do not want to do unrighteous judgment. I've already talked about some of that. Unrighteous judgment is when I look at you and I judge you based on me. I'm the standard. Or I judge you based on my preferences, right? If you do something different than me, I judge you on it. For instance, people are very good, legalistic Christians are very good at unrighteous judgment when it comes to, like, let's say a homosexual. Somebody can look at a homosexual and say, oh, that person, look at that person because it's a minority sin. Look at that person. I would never do that while they're sleeping with their girlfriend or sleeping with someone that's not their wife. That's unrighteous judgment. That's unrighteous. That's not right. That's not good, right? Or look at that person. They're so greedy, but I don't tithe. I, I don't give. I'm not. That's unrighteous judgment. We shouldn't judge based on our ourselves as the standard or according to our preferences. That's unrighteous. Now let me tell you what righteous judgment is. Righteous judgment is when we make a judgment based off of someone's life, including my own, when it doesn't sync up with Scripture. That's righteous judgment. And that is not only righteous judgment, that is a judgment that we have a biblical responsibility to do. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 1 when he says, you know, he lists 21 sins at the end. He talks about homosexuality and they're like, yeah, all fired up, go, go, go. But then he says, oh, okay. And then he lists 21 sins and then he says, those who practice such things deserve to die along with those who approve of them. And sometimes approving of them is not saying, hey, I approve of it. Sometimes it's just remaining silent. So 
unrighteous judgment is when I'm judging you based off of me as the standard or my preferences, what I would do, what I wouldn't do. That's unrighteous. Righteous judgment is when I take the Word of God and when I say, hey, you shouldn't be uh, a homosexual, you shouldn't be practicing homosexual behavior because this is what the Bible says. I love you. I, I'm speaking truth, but I'm showing compassion because I'm not unrighteously judging. You shouldn't be sleeping with your girlfriend because this is what the Bible says. You shouldn't be getting drunk because this is what the Bible says, right? You shouldn't be gossiping because this is what the Bible says. You shouldn't be cheating on your income taxes because of, of what the Bible teaches. All these are uh, righteous judgment based off of God's Word coming into sync with God's Word. And we have a biblical responsibility to do that. So when Paul's talking about judgment, he's talking about folks who, who it's not about helping people understand God's Word and live it. It's talking about grading on a curve, finding someone who's worse than I am in my eyes and in the eyes of the majority of the world so I can feel better about myself. Paul says, you're a hypocrite. Don't point it out. Live it out. Now let's go on into verses 2 and 3. He says this, we know that the judgment of God rightly, very important word right here. We're going to talk about this word. You need to understand this word. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, religious man, synagogue going Jew, that's what that phrase, O oh man, means, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. A couple of things that Paul tells us here that we can learn. One, couple things about judgment. One, judgment is certain. We're all going to stand before God. You can bet. You, you can bank on it. You will stand before God one day, each and every one of us. And the judgment, the standard for whether we'll go to heaven or hell is not based off of whether I've done enough good to cover my sin, but whether I've trusted Jesus to cover my sin. It's not about religion. It's about Jesus. Okay? Religion's not going to get you there, folks. Religion is wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be burned up. Jesus is the only thing that's going to get you. Heaven, hell. That's the difference. It's Jesus, not religion, not you being good enough. So you're going to stand before God, guaranteed, biblical, you will stand before God. That's what Paul tells you. You can't escape it. Okay? And now he says he, he's going to judge according to, rightly. He's going to judge rightly. His judgment rightly falls on those. And so what does that mean? It means God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is just. You see, we don't always get righteous, just judgment in our courts today. Sometimes the innocent go to prison. Sometimes the guilty are set free, right? I mean, sometimes we don't always, our courts don't have just judgment. In my home, there's not always just judgment. Right? I mean, I, I lay down the law and I, 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 you know, punish my children. And sometimes it's not righteous. Sometimes it's not ju just punishment. Because, you see, I, I, don't, I don't know all the facts. I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. And sometimes I jump to a conclusion. Or sometimes a brother or a sister told me something that wasn't true. Right? And gets the other one in trouble. And I uh, levy a punishment that wasn't just or right. And it's the same with our, in our businesses, church. I mean, but with God... His judgment is right and just because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every inculpatory and every uh, exculpatory detail. Every, he knows everything. You can't hide anything from God. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, which means he's able to carry out the punishment, able to carry out the judgment. He's perfect, which means he can't be bribed. He can't be fooled. He knows every detail, and his judgment is just and right. And we'll all stand before God, and his judgment's going to be just, according to reality, not what we want it to be, not a curve. And Paul says, 
the judgment of God rightly falls on those who, who commit these things, who do these things. What things? Well, remember, homosexuality, 26, 27. Yeah, preach it, brother. Preach it. Oh, get them. And then Paul says, all right. And then he lists 21 sins to end chapter 1. By the way, those sins are like greed, coveting, disobeying your parents. Uh-oh, he's hitting us all. He, he's hitting us all right between the eyes. I'm talking about you, he said. You see, they loved it when he was hitting the, the, the one that they thought was worse than them. They loved it when he was, uh, you know, I mean, hitting the, the Gentile sinners between the eyes. But now he's jumped in their playground and started playing, and they didn't want to play anymore. Right? I, I mean, when he jumped up in their playground, uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't, they didn't want to play anymore. And so, you know, um, because the religious people, the moral people, Man, they think they're better because they keep more rules than the rebel. And I like it because there's an obvious difference in the rules that I keep and they keep. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, we're all going to stand before God one day. And the, the, the verdict is not going to be on how much good you've done because you can't be good enough. Because what's required for your entrance into heaven is perfection. The requirement's perfection. So if, if we're separated from God by our sin and the requirement to get into heaven is perfection, anybody want to stand up and say, I've made it? No, that's bad news for us. Even if today you said, you know what, I've got to stop sinning, uh, there's no way you could be perfect. So we're damned. We're in trouble. <laughs> it's bad news for us, right? No, no, no. It's bad news if you're counting on you. It's bad news if you're counting on your ability to keep the law. But God said, I didn't give you the law to save you, but to show you that you needed salvation. And so here's the, 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 the standard is perfection. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin, which meant he had no inherited sin like you and I have. See, we're born sinners, but we also choose to sin. Jesus was neither. He wasn't born a sinner. He didn't choose to sin. He lived a perfect life so that he could die a death that would justify the righteousness of God and that would satisfy the righteousness of God. So he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and what happened was when he was on the cross, God took all the sin of all of those who would surrender to him and he put them on Jesus. It's called imputed. He imputed our sin to Jesus. All of my sin was given to Jesus. Every bad thought I've ever had, ever had, every bad word I've ever said, every action that I've ever done that displeased God, you, if you're a believer, everything you've ever done that dishonored God was given to Jesus on the cross, and he paid for that. Everything you would ever do, the sins I've yet to commit were given to Jesus on the cross. Because the moment he redeemed me, he not only forgave the sins I've committed, but every sin I'm going to commit. That's why he could say with authority, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's glorious. That's awesome. That makes me go, wow. Because you see, all of my sin was put on Jesus. And at the same time, all of his righteousness, perfection was given to me. So when God looks at me, he looks through the cross and he sees me as perfect through Jesus Christ. He got my sin. I got his perfection. So Jesus lived the life that I couldn't live to die the death that I should have died to give me the life that I don't deserve. That's grace. That's mercy. That's glorious. That ought to make you say, God is awesome. And that's what he's causing these religious hypocrites to understand. You've got it all wrong. 
Man, you're perverting the gospel when you're making this about you. When you're, when you're trying to think, oh, look at me, how much better I am than that person. When it doesn't matter, it's all about Jesus. That's not, that's not what the, the standard for you getting into heaven. And isn't it ironic that the only way to escape God's judgment is to accept it? The only way for you to escape God's judgment is to accept it. In other words, for you to say, you know what, God's right. I deserve damnation. I deserve death. I deserve that. I deserve to be condemned. When I, when, I, when I accept it and say I deserve it and then I repent of it and jump into Jesus and trust Jesus, that is the way I escape it. The only way to escape it is to accept it. It's so ironic. So let's go on and move to verses 4 and 5. He said, or do you presume, very important word, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? He tells us a lot about God's character. He's kind, he's forbearing, he's patient. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, Paul says that the moral religious man presumes on God's mercy and grace. In other words, he takes it for granted. He makes a mistake of thinking that uh, God's patience is God's approval. In other words, well, man, I'm in my sin. I'm doing my thing. and I mean, man, life's pretty good. I got a good job. I'm making good money. Kids, I mean, man, life's pretty good. So we make the mistake of thinking that God's patience is God's approval. And God's patience doesn't mean God's pleased. God's patience means that he is giving you more time to repent. It means he's giving you more time to repent. And that ought to cause you to go, wow. I mean, some champion, once saved, always saved. All right? Now, I'm a champion of perseverance of the saints. And some of you would say, well, there's really no difference in the concept. I'm going to tell you that there's a huge difference in the mindset. You see, people that say once saved, always saved, here's what happens. People that say that because it's like, oh, well, he prayed a prayer and was baptized and joined the church years ago. And it doesn't matter that he's living like hell because he pay, prayed this prayer and he joined a church and he's saved, although his life doesn't show it. But I know he prayed that prayer. That's one saved, always saved, right? Well, perseverance of the same, that presumes on God's mercy. That's a presumptuous of God's grace. It's taking it for granted. Perseverance of the saints basically means this, that when I am, when I am redeemed by Jesus, truly redeemed, I am truly redeemed. And I will not lose that. No one will steal that or take that away but I'll persevere to the end. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. No way. You haven't been perfect th th this morning. I haven't been perfect since I got to church. Okay? Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. Means I'm going to lose my head. Means I'm going to mess up. But I'm going to persevere, not presume. There could be seasons of my life where I go off the rail a little bit. Right? And when I'm off the rail, here's the thing. There have been seasons of my life when I went off the rail. And what happens is, man, I, I've been off the rail and I've been miserable because the Holy Spirit was within me saying, you've got to get back where you need to be because you're presume, you, you can't presume God's grace. You've got to get back. And so, you know, uh, the perseverance of the saints means I persevere. I, I don't presume. And honestly, you know, sometimes we look at folks and when we're religious and moral and we want to look at other people, we can, sometimes we look at other people and, man, you can think of evil in the world, major evil. I mean, evil guys like Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, those guys are no longer with us, right? But ISIS, 
ISIS today. You, you can look at people who are major evil in the world, and you think, why does God let that continue? Why doesn't God just stomp it because it's evil, right? And I've I, I, I got to admit, there's times when I say, wow, man, God, why don't God just wipe it out? Well, let me make sure we understand, and we've got to come back and understand when we understand the Bible and we understand uh, doctrine, then it works itself out in, in our thoughts. And, and so the, the thing is, it, because God is patient with people like Hitler, in other words, he, he Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, no longer with us, but they, they wreaked a lot of havoc until they were taken out. And ISIS is wreaking a lot of havoc. And that doesn't mean that God's pleased in any matter of the term with that behavior. Uh, that, doesn't, that means that God's got a plan and God's patient. It means God's got a plan that we can't see. And when we can't see his hand, we trust his heart. He's got a plan, and he's patient. And we need to be thankful for that rather than questioning, why does God allow ISIS to continue to murder people and wreak havoc on the world? Why didn't he lower the boom on them? Rather than doing that, we need to be grateful and thankful because of God's, uh, I mean, a beautiful picture of his mercy and patience and forbearance and grace because we, at the same point, could ask, you know what, why didn't God lower the boom on us when I'm having sex with my girlfriend before I'm married to her? Why didn't God lower the boom on us when we're having sex with someone that's not our wife? Why don't God lower the boom on us when we're cheating on our income taxes? Or why don't God lower the boom on us when we're sitting in front of a computer screen watching porn all day? Why didn't God lower the, the boom on us when we're lying, when we're posing like we're something we're not? Why didn't God lower the boom? Because of his, his forbearance, the richness of his forbearance and his mercy and his grace. It is a glorious, beautiful picture of the mercy of God. Don't presume on his grace that you can live how you want because you're not being punished. You need to thank God that he is patient wanting you to repent. It's beautiful. It makes God glorious and amazing. And so don't think people are getting away with their sin either. I mean, every time we see someone, we're like, well, they're getting away with their sin. Man, they sinned for all those years. They, they get, no, we don't get away with, no one gets away with our sin. Every sin ever committed will be paid for. Every sin you commit. Now, here's the deal. I've committed a lot of sins. I will commit more sins, right? We've all committed a lot of sins. All of my sins are paid for by Jesus Christ. That's grace. I don't deserve that. That's grace. I don't presume it. That's grace. So every sin will either be paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross or by you for all of eternity if you don't surrender to him. Every sin will be paid for. Jesus paid my sin. So, so when you uh, are having a problem with bitterness or unforgiveness because someone wronged you and you're thinking they're getting away. No, they're not getting away. If they are a Christian, Jesus paid for that sin even though it was against you. If they're not, they will pay for it for all of eternity. Every sin will be paid for. Every sin. No one gets away. And here's what, God, here's what Paul said. Don't think people are getting away with sin because they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. In, in other words, we're all going to stand before God. It's certain. It's guaranteed. And when we stand before God, my judgment will not be heaven or hell. That's already been declared. I have my reservation, Right? My reservation is paid for in full, it's secure, it's I'm going to heaven based on Jesus Christ. Completely not based on anything I've done because if it's based on me, I'd be spending eternity in the smoking section, right? But not 
because of me, but because of Jesus. It's promised. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. So my judgment, and if you're a believer, you're with me, your judgment is not heaven or hell. That's declared. But I will stand before God to get my rewards. I will be rewarded for what I've done and for what I haven't, right? I will be rewarded differently. And so what he says is those who commit sin that don't know Jesus, they're also going to be punished more severely because of sin. Every sin you commit puts money in the bank. That's what he says. You're storing it up. It's like you put money in savings. You're storing it up. Your money's building. Well, every sin you commit goes into your account. And when, when you stand before God, you're going to hear God say, depart. I never knew you. You're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And when you're cast into the lake of fire, hell is going to be stoked a little bit hotter for every sin you commit. Because hell is God's manifest justice. His perfect justice is meted out in hell. And his punishment always fits his crime because he is perfect and holy. So there will be different levels of punishment. Just as there's different levels of rewards. So no sin is going unpunished. No sin is going unpunished. Let's, let's finish it out, Romans 2, 6 through 11. He says this, He will render to each one according to his works. That can be, okay, does that contradict? Because Paul talks about faith, you know, salvation by faith. No, it doesn't. We'll talk about it. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteous, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So here's what Paul said. Paul makes clear that we're going to be judged according to our works, according to what we do. Now, does that contradict? Because we know Paul teaches, is going to teach justification by faith alone. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Right? So this does not contradict. This is not faith versus works. This is truth versus hypocrisy. We're saved by grace through faith, justification by faith alone, but we're judged by works. We're judged by works. And, and you, you see, uh, this, this, this is about hip, hypocrisy versus truth, and hypocrites uh, talk a good game, but their lives don't match their talk. We all know folks, right? We all know folks. They, they talk a good game, but their lives don't match it. They claim to love Jesus, but man, they're, they're the most ungracious people. Invented the beer, beer face, right? Bitter, I mean, ungracious, unloving, no mercy. I mean, man, I, not generous. I mean, we, we, we all know people that claim to love Jesus, but man, I mean, and, and, and easily point out other people's sins, but their life, and this is so important because what is in your heart will come out of your life. You're greedy, it's going to come out. You're ungracious, it's going to come out. You're a bigot, it's going to come out. But if you're gracious, if your heart's been redeemed and you've got a gracious heart, it's going to come out. If you're loving, it's going to come out. If you're generous, it's going to come out. How you live is a barometer of what you really mean when you say something. Right? So hypocrites, they, they talk the talk, but they definitely don't walk the walk. And again here he says that, that there are two kinds of people. 
Remember before I said saved and unsaved, righteous, unrighteous. Here he says those who are God-seekers and those who are self-seekers. Those who are God-centered, those who are self-centered. And the obvious difference is seen in their desires, their ambitions, and their ultimate destiny, right? He says for the person who is a God-seeker, the, the man who is God-centered, the woman who is God-centered, he desires glory, honor, and immortality. Now, it's not glory of himself. It is glory of being molded into the image of Jesus Christ. It is the honor of standing before God one day and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's the immortality of being in the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. That's what the God-seeker, the God-centered man or woman pursues, and it changes how they live. It affects how we think and how we live. On the other hand, the self-centered, the self-seeking individual, man, he, the glory and honor they want is right here, right now, from men, from women, from their job. That's the, the glory and the honor that they seek. And it affects how they live. It affects what they think. It affects what they do. And that's what Paul is saying. He says it determines what we live for and how we live our life. And notice he ends verse 11 by saying, God doesn't show favoritism. He's not, he, he, doesn't, he's not, he doesn't show partiality. Boy, that's bad news for the Jews. Bad news for the Jews. Because you see, they thought, man, I'm God's favorite. We're God's favorite. I, my, my, I was, my granddaddy was a, a Jew. My, my, my grandmama, my great-granddaddy was, a, uh, was, a, was a, a priest, you know, a rabbi, on and on and on, because we're Abraham's descendant. And we're Abraham's descendant means we are in. God loves us. God says, nope. He wrote that 2,000 years ago for the, church, for the synagogue-going Jews, but it applies to those today who are church-going Christians. He wrote that to people who'd say, you prayed that prayer. You joined that church. You got baptized. Your grandmama went to church. Man, your great-granddaddy was a preacher. You're in. You live in a Christian country. Nope. God said, when you stand before him one day, there is no favoritism and no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're Abraham's descendant or if your name's on 15 churches. counts for nothing. He's going to say, you know what? Some of you did pray a prayer. It's like there's some hocus-pocus magic to a prayer. Oh, poof, God, uh, you, you prayed a prayer and poof, you're in. No. Some of you didn't get baptized. You got wet. Because, you see, baptism is a symbol of a regenerated life. Getting wet, getting dunked when you really hadn't been regenerated. Your name can be on this church, and let me tell you, that gets you some privileges around here. That lets you lead a small group. Man, that lets you vote on some things. That, that gets you some privileges here, but that has no privilege in heaven. None whatsoever. It means nothing. So what I want you to understand is if you do not know Jesus, you need to understand that the gospel that we talk about each week is the only way you're going to get there. Not religion, not being good enough, not trying to cover your sins, not trying to tip the scales into your favor, nothing. Only Jesus. Do you trust him? Those of you, and, I, and, and here, here's what I want you to understand. Billy Graham once said that 50% of people who are church members do not know Jesus Christ, and I believe that. I believe that there are a lot of people in churches that have gotten wet, got their name on the roll, they prayed a prayer, and there's been no fruit of repentance within their life. There's been no regeneration whatsoever, no, no fruit that they have actually turned their life over to Jesus Christ. Now, those who have, you've messed up a lot, okay? You screw up a lot. You, you, we always make a mess of things. And I'm not saying that you're perfect, but I'm saying 
you, do you have fruit of repentance in your life? Don't stand before God one day and count a prayer, a dunk, or a church member letter. Don't, don't, don't count on that. The only thing you count on is Jesus Christ. And Paul says we need to examine ourselves and see where we are. And how do you know? Is there fruit of repentance in your life? You're not going to be perfect, but do you want the things God wants? Are you more and more hungry for the things of God? Uh, is God full, is your ambitions, is, is God the center and circumference of your life? And don't tell me he's a priority. God's number one. Well, I don't want him, if God's your priority, it's a major issue. Because if he's number one today, something else will jump up and be number one tomorrow, and he'll be fighting for number one. He doesn't need to be your priority. He needs to be your life. Priorities are everything else. God is your life. Does that reflect you? If not, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us because we want to clearly, hear, if, you want to, if you're a guest, we want you to clearly understand that we are always going to tell you the truth as we see it through the Bible. Man, we're not going to try to pat our seats and pat you on the back. We want you to know the truth because I will stand before God one day and I will answer, just as you will, for the truth that I tell you. And I'm going to always tell you the truth as, as it flows and, and dovetails out of the Word of God because I want you to know the truth. And don't get there one day and count on any good works or any amount of church attendance or, or, or any amount of giving or anything else for God to say, Man, look at that guy. Look at you. You're good. No. Look at Jesus. Look at you. If you don't measure up to Jesus, you're not in. The only way to measure up to Jesus is be in Jesus. Then he just sees Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's grace. That's mercy. For those of you who are true believers, that ought to cause you to go, man, I'm living my life full bore, wide open, hair on fire for Jesus. I'm all in. I'm all into him, I'm all into his church, and I'm all into living a life sent in a world that desperately needs the gospel. So if you're not a believer, come and talk to us. If you have questions, come and talk to us. If you are, let's go, let's do this thing. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. God, I, I, when we read your word, and Lord, thank you for the letter of Romans. Thank you for how you're challenging us, God challenging me. God, I pray that believers would not be posers, would not live a life to where we try to make everyone think we're perfect, to where we try to make everyone think we're something we're not. Help us to be real. And God, help us to, in, our re, in, in the realness of, of our faith, to point to you as a God of grace that redeems the broken God, help our lives to be trophies of your grace. God, every believer, God, help us to live as a trophy of your grace. God, help us to not enter unrighteous judgment, but to be committed to righteous judgment. Help us to love your word more. Live your word more. Study your word more. Help it to change us at the core of who we are so that we become like you. Help the glory we seek to be molded into your image. Help the honor that we seek to be told by you, well done. Help the immortality that we seek to be in your presence. And help that to change the very fabric of our life and how we live. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.